everyone. Welcome to The Donut of Truth, a podcast about emergency medicine. I'm your host, Dakota Farrell. I'm a third-year emergency medicine resident and will be taking you on this journey. The purpose of this podcast is to shed some light on the life of an emergency medicine provider for our friends, family, and the curious mind. A few disclaimers before we begin. Content is not intended for medical advice or care. The views and opinions of those on this podcast are ours alone and are not the views and opinions of our employer or healthcare system. Any clinical cases or patient presentations discussed during this podcast are hypothetical or have had the patient's personal identification removed or HIPAA compliance. Welcome back to our podcast. This week, I have Dr. Rachel Godlewski with me. She is also a co-resident of mine. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Can you please give a brief introduction of who you are, where you're from, whatever you want? Okay. Uh, So my name is Rachel. I am a third-year EM resident in Metro Atlanta. I grew up in Macon, Georgia, went to undergrad at the University of Georgia, and then went to medical school at the Medical College of Georgia. All right. So Georgia all the way. Yes. (laughs) Awesome. Okay. So um, did you just go straight into from undergrad into med school nothing in between no I took a year off in between um after I graduated college I had applied to med school I did not get in the first round I never came off the wait list not bitter about it (laughs) no but in actuality I do think that year off was really good for me I think I matured a lot um and I worked as a scribe in an emergency department awesome it seems like um it's not always typical to go straight into medical school from undergrad. If you do, you're like a genius or something. <laughs> I just say that because I didn't go straight. Yeah, I'm no genius, so <laughs> didn't go straight through. Uh, love to hear about your first shift as an emergency medicine resident. <laughs> so my first shift was on July 3rd with the program director. Um, we were in the orange pod over in the old ER. So, um, basically this was a kind of separated pod, theoretically a little bit lower acuity, always smelled like a GI bleed. And, um, one of my patients was like a diverticulitis type picture and I ordered a CT scan without contrast. Mm -hmm. And I remember the radiology read was like limited due to lack of contrast, concern for like micro abscesses and micro perforations and so I had to send her back for a second CT with contrast and so I went to go explain to the patient that um, I had made a mistake and I had to send her back for another CT scan and I literally started crying to her when I was apologizing to her for having to go back and she could not have been sweeter she was like oh honey it's fine it's your first day because my attending had told her that it was my first day as a doctor. I love that. I'm glad she was at least understanding, but I can definitely understand that anxiety of having to admit you did something wrong mm-hmm. or like not even know what you're doing because it's day one of being a doctor. So um, what did your program director say about it? Oh, he just laughed his ass off at me. And like, that's just him. Like, okay. He thought it was hilarious, well, especially that I cried. well that's good um I'm glad that that didn't go bad because I I feel like some places or with some attendings it could have been a bad thing (laughs) if you had to send the patient back or if the patient refused or something it would have been 
uh, a bigger deal. But that's mm-hmm. good. Um, but overall, how was it like going into that shift? Were you nervous? Were you excited? Like, what were your overall feelings for those of the new medical students who have just matched going into residency, maybe listening to this and hopefully can relate? I mean, I think it was a mixture of both. You know, obviously, I was very, very anxious. Um, You know, you feel, especially with that time off after match and before you start, like, you forget a lot. Not that we had that much medical knowledge that was actually useful, I think, to begin with. And so I was really anxious. But at the same time, like, we're finally doing what we want to do. And we're finally doctors. We finally do get to start at least trying to make some decisions as scary as that is considering I was afraid to order Tylenol for a patient (laughs) I remember on my first day I wrote a prescription for ibuprofen for a patient and I remember it printing out with my signature on it and I was like in disbelief that I was writing prescriptions that's the first time you ever write a prescription ever and I basically turned to my attending and I was like so I can just give this to them and he was like yes and he made a joke he was like I mean do you want to take a picture of your first prescription you ever wrote and me being kind of you know naive was like yeah and he was like totally joking and I felt so stupid but it was an exciting moment when you actually can do doctor things Mm -hmm. and also scary like when I needed to give uh, fentanyl to a patient and I only ordered 25 mics Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the nurse was like, okay. You definitely learn, you know, later on that these things aren't, you know, as scary and you get more comfortable with it for sure. So kind of going back to you on your first day, you know, you saw a patient um, and they knew it was your first day. Um, Can you kind of elaborate what it might be like for a patient coming to the emergency department, seeing a resident? I mean, at any level, as an intern, as, you know, a senior resident like we are, what can they maybe expect? A vast difference between an intern and a third year, especially a July intern. So I remember intern year, I would always say, you know, I'm a resident. Um, My attending is also going to come see you. We're going to talk about your case and we're going to come up with a plan. I would never promise any workup at all to a patient as an intern because I was like always wrong. So um, second year, I started getting a little more confident being like, we're going to do labs, like maybe some imaging, you know, like whatever, whatever. And then third year, I'm like, this is what we're going to do. And I don't really care what my attending says about it. This is what we're going to do. I do think patients can probably tell, you know, the level of the resident based on how confident we are in there when we're in the room. Um, as an intern, you know, we are almost scared of the patient, whereas now, like, I do feel responsible for them and their care. And so um, I think it's fairly obvious to patients, you know, they're not dumb. Yeah, I agree. I think the nice thing about it, if you ever go to the emergency department and you're taken care of by a resident, just know you're getting multiple eyes on you. You're not only being taken care of by the resident, but the attending. You're talking about the case in depth and why you're ordering what you're ordering. And you've got two set of eyes um, looking at the labs and the images and coming up with a plan for you. So it's not always a bad thing. I know people joke about it and they're you know, say don't go to the emergency department on July 1st, which I probably wouldn't either um, just because they're brand new interns, you know, working. But uh, just know that it's 
you're you're safe. You can be seen by a resident for sure. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the attending is closely watching the interns. And I do think that a lot of people tend to think a little harder about the cases because they're brainstorming between two physicians. And so sometimes we do come up with a little more workup that maybe they wouldn't have done on their own without talking and brainstorming. Yeah, definitely. So kind of explain to anybody who is not in medicine what a daily life of a resident looks like or even a week or a month or the whole entire three years of emergency medicine life is like as a resident, what goes into our workload and such. I mean, it's definitely hard, Um, you know, even for EM residents where, you know, we don't necessarily have that same workload that other specialties might have, but we still work, you know, three, four, five days a week, sometimes more, um, depending on the rotation and just your schedule that month. Um, And it's really mentally draining in the ER being nonstop and there's no mental breaks on shift. And so I think that is really draining. And then we have outside of shift work responsibilities between lectures, creating and giving lectures, um, journal entries that we have to do where we follow up on patient cases. Um, We have to do a scholarly activity that's um, required by ACGME. Yeah. Things like that. It's kind of a lot. It's not just go to work and go home. There's Mm -hmm. always something to do. Um, And to touch on shift work, we work all different types of shifts, morning, nights, midday, and it's constantly changing. So you can be switching from an overnight and then have what looks like a day off and then starting a morning shift, but it's really not because you come home in the morning and you're sleeping all day and then you're expected to get up the next day to work. We try not to do that. Uh, You know, that's not good for your circadian rhythm and kind of contributes to emergency medicine physician burnout. But yeah, it's not, you know, a cakewalk, that's for sure. So, all right, well, tell me about uh, what's, you know, residency been like for you um, in Metro Atlanta. A lot of things to do around here. Um, How's your social life? Talk about it. So intern year was great for most of it. Um, And then the global pandemic hit and it definitely slowed down the social aspects of, you know, life. But um, we still found ways to get together, just small groups at each other's houses um, to socialize. I met my boyfriend during that time um, at another hospital on a rotation. (laughs) Some Grey's Anatomy stuff here. All right, not that far. But but yeah, so he's been great. He's been um, a real rock for me on some of these hard shifts. And then most of my friends, having lived in Georgia all my life, have pretty much all congregated in the city. So dating another resident, what is your like life like? Do you see each other often? What's what's it like? The first year of our relationship, I think I saw him like maybe once a week. Um, he's a surgery resident, and so he has significantly less time off than I do. But then when he does have time off, I might be working because of our shift work. I'm not guaranteed weekends off. So um, we've gotten a little bit better now that he's moved in um, to my place, but it's still hard a lot of the time. Like, 
I haven't really seen him in a couple weeks, it feels like, because he's been working really late the past couple weeks, and I've been on evening shifts, so I don't really see him. Yeah, that's got to be hard. Um, But I'm glad you guys are making it work. Yeah, we are. (laughs) (laughs) Good. All right, so I would like to hear a little bit about, um, I don't know, any stories that you have in the emergency department, any patients that kind of have been burnt into your memory, um, whether it was a, you know, good outcome, bad outcome, just interesting case, um, just to kind of give the audience an idea of like what type of patients we might see. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I had this case on it. It was, uh, 5am on an overnight. So, um, for those of you listening, our overnight shifts, we stopped picking up at five, but we're still responsible for any medical alerts that come in between five and six. And so um, we had this patient come in at like 5.15 from an LTAC. He had been in, um, he was a young, young dude who had recovered from flu, but he had been intubated in the ICU with like ARDS. He had horrible lung disease afterwards and ended up on a trach. So he came in as a trach bleed. And, you know, anyone who knows anything about emergency medicine, you hear those words and you pretty much need to change your pants. Yeah, I Uh, just got nervous. (laughs) So thankfully, the trach bleed was not the issue. It was just some mucosal like oozing around the trach. But he was seizing when he got there and no history of seizures that they knew of. Um, He was hypoxic to the 60s and he was not being bagged the bag had become dislodged um so we decided he was probably seizing because he had been hypoxic so we immediately removed the trach and intubated him f- by mouth hmm. um and then his sats kind of started to come up um we got him up to 90 and then he quickly dropped again and then he coded um we started doing cpr we listening for breath sounds are really weren't that great on the left side. Um, So we ended up putting in bilateral chest tubes. Um, I was putting one in on the left. Dr. Rice over here, our producer, is putting in one on the right. He had arrived from the morning shift at this time. And um, I just remember this is our intern year, and this is my first chest tube. It was really stressful just already to be doing that during compressions as well. And then, I mean, so much blood came out of the left chest Hmm. I was like in that in that moment you know you're not really thinking rationally when you first see that I was like did I hit the aorta right and you know of course I didn't that would have been impossible but then I'm like oh my god what if I hit the internal mammary like all this stuff and anyway so we get the chest tubes in we get Rosk we send him to CT he codes in CT we take him back to the trauma bay and we start resuscitating him. We're putting in a central line. There's all this stuff. There's seven doctors in the room working mm-hmm. this guy. And we finally get him stable enough to go to the OR. But that case literally burned in my memory forever. I yeah. think probably Alan's as well. It's like that patient who constantly is circling the drain, mm-hmm. lack of better terms. But um, that kind of keeps you on edge the whole time because you don't know if they're going to get worse, if they're going to get better, especially when they use coding and then you get back, the likelihood of them to code again is so high. And so those can be very scary, especially for an intern. 
after an overnight and trying to go home. But luckily, Dr. Rice showed up at 6 a.m. to help out, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was definitely a stressful morning um, and one I won't forget, especially just, I don't know, there wasn't an obvious reason why this guy had gone downhill at the LTAC to us. So we ended up having to get the reason from the OR report. He had had some lung adhesions and necrotic lung that had basically torn from his pleural cavity and caused like a massive hemoneumothorax. Jeez. Well, it sounds like you guys did a good job. I mean, this kind of is a good segue into uh, a topic I like to talk about is what my friends and family think I do versus what I actually do. (laughs) Um, I feel like sometimes um, some families might think that, you know, we go to shift, we see patients, we hand out Tylenol and tell them you have, you know, the flu or COVID or stomach bug and go home. Sometimes, you know, we give breathing treatments, admit patients. But what they don't know or have never seen is us in action when a patient is crashing and critical. And I think that it's hard to see or think about. Um, You see it on TV and our friends and family might see an event on television be like, is that what you do? And Oddly, yeah, like kind of, that's what we do. I mean, obviously there's theatrics in any TV show and the medicine might not actually be 100% accurate, but um, I think it is interesting sometimes that we do these things and people don't really realize it and we can come off of a shift like that and go home and they would never know Mm -hmm. unless there's blood all over your pants or whatever, but they would never know. We just come home and go to sleep and then, or eat breakfast or whatever and (laughs) carry on. And Mm -hmm. so I think it's really interesting. I don't know. Do you get a lot of friends or family who are not in medicine ever asking you like, what's the craziest thing you've seen or done? All the time. Yeah. (laughs) I feel like that's the number one question us emergency medicine (laughs) residents or physicians get is, what's the craziest thing you've ever seen or done? And it's so hard to answer because, one, I think the craziest thing I've ever seen or done might not be as interesting as what they want to hear. I've always heard people want to hear about the foreign objects that get dislodged into someone's rectum or Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, someone's arm getting cut off or something. But we tend to experience things differently and find things to be crazy or interesting. Yeah, we definitely have a different opinion on the craziest things we've ever seen. Like my, agree, my friends all want to hear about the gory traumas, not about the atypical type A dissection that I had that I was so excited that we found. That's why I think when we share amongst ourselves, it's interesting because we find cases that are more rare to be the exciting, weird things. Yeah, Um, I think that a lot of times it's funny to me when someone says, oh, have you done sutures before? Have you ever done stitches? And I'm like, yes, (laughs) every day. (laughs) But then they take that and they're like, oh, so you do surgery? Yeah. And I'm like, no. No. Okay, so I actually have a case that I will never forget and is burned into my memory. It actually happened at the beginning of the year when I was on the trauma service. We rotate for a month with a trauma team and respond to all of the trauma alerts. And so I had a case where a trauma came in and it was a patient who had gotten into an accident and their heart stopped um, beating just prior to arriving to the emergency department. 
And in cases like this, um, there's a few things that you can try to look for to hopefully get their heart to start beating again. And typically there's a algorithm you go down to try to find the source of bleeding because that's the main concern. And so basically what happened was the patient rolled in and they're actively doing CPR on the patient. And we started with intubating, um, putting a breathing tube down their throat and starting with chest tubes on both sides of the chest to look for blood kind of similarly to what Rachel had done in her patient. And at that point, we still did not find a source of bleeding, nor did he regain his pulse. So what happens next is what we call uh, ED thoracotomy. And the patient gets a large incision over the left side of their chest and their ribs get split open and you basically deflate the lung to get access to the heart. And so you go into their chest and you usually cut the sac around the heart and you clamp the aorta and you can do massage to the heart to try to, you know, do compressions or get the heart to, you know, start back up. You can even put injections of epinephrine right into the heart muscle or right into the ventricle itself um, and hopefully regain circulation. Um, and so this is something that was happening in the emergency department. Someone's chest was being completely opened. And luckily, the patient regained pulses. And so at that point, the patient needs to go to the OR. And so we're sitting there, you know, giving this patient everything we can. We're getting, you know, uh, vascular access, dumping blood into this patient so that they can continue to circulate blood, perfuse their brain, and so their heart doesn't stop again. And so at this point, we're ready to move the patient to the OR, um, and unfortunately, the elevators were down. And so we were unable to get the patient transported to the OR. And what we had to do is load the patient back into the ambulance he came in with an open chest, drive them around the building to where the ORs were, and unload them. And so I actually got into the ambulance with the patient and I was continuing cardiac massage because he kept losing pulses, then regaining, then losing, and giving uh, doses of epinephrine right into the heart. And so I had blood all over me. I was in the back of an ambulance that was moving with a respiratory therapist and with a nurse. And it was the most terrifying thing in my life. Um, I hate that the elevators were not working and ultimately the patient went to the OR and he did die, but I do want to preface that most cases like this of patients who go into cardiac arrest from trauma who require a thoracotomy um, do die. So I don't think it would have changed outcome, but it was unreal. It was honestly like I was in a TV show. It was pretty dramatic. Um, and I will never forget that. And I am shaking now thinking and talking about it because it was very traumatizing. And there was a lot of debriefing about it afterwards. And that's one thing that I appreciate about emergency medicine is we all kind of go through this together and we all talk about this stuff and we know what it's like to have really bad cases and bad outcomes. Mm -hmm. I remember that case, um, and I think that it should be said just because you're a badass and you deserve all the recognition. Dakota was on her own in that room. There was no ED attending, and there was no trauma attending when that patient first rolled up. So while they arrived before the thoracotomy happened, 
Dakota expertly managed that case by herself. I wouldn't have been able to do that as an intern. It's something I've learned along the way. Yeah, that was a a crazy case that I will never forget. And Mm -hmm. I feel like I have so many. Um, Obviously, I don't have the time today to talk about them all, but that was definitely the most impressionable Mm -hmm. case. Okay, so that being said, what did you think the most challenging thing was going to be coming into emergency medicine? And then what do you think actually is the most challenging thing? Before I started... I thought it was going to be just eye complaints in general. I had this, like, weird thing about eyes that, like, freaked me the f*** out. Can I say that? Yeah, you can say that. <laughs> but then, um, like, my first day before I walked into my first shift, I was like, "What? who am I kidding? It's what if a patient dies? Obviously, I think that's everyone's, like, initial um, fear is dealing with the death of a patient. Um, and, I mean, yeah, that is hard. And it, you know, depending on the case, can be scarred into our brains forever. But I think that now the thing that is hardest just on the job is explaining to patients that I don't know the cause of their symptoms and making sure they don't feel blown off by it. You know, your pain is real. I don't know what's causing it. I'm sending you to a specialist, and I usually try, I don't know, to make a light of it and be like, oh, I'm sending you to someone smarter than me just because, you know, I'm trying to give them, like, a sense of faith that that doctor is going to be able to figure it out because, I mean, how many undifferentiated abdominal pains do we see that CT, labs, ultrasounds, whatever, we've ordered are negative and we have no explanation? Yeah, I think it's the hardest to tell a patient I don't know why. I agree. I think another key point that you mentioned was we as emergency medicine physicians know um, a little about a lot. Mm -hmm. We don't know a lot about a little. So we do send patients to specialists very often to kind of get that further workup. And I think it's important to highlight to patients that if we're sending you home, that's a good thing. If we don't find anything, that's a good thing. I don't want to find something bad and have to admit you to the hospital. I would rather you be able to go home and have an outpatient workup and, you know, sleep in your own bed. I don't want to have to tell you I found terrible cancer or, you know, something um, that requires admission and a lifelong issue. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that is definitely challenging. I think prior to coming into emergency medicine, I was scared how I would deal with the death as well. Um, And so that's something that we experience daily, and it doesn't get easier. I think we learn to, you know, recover from it uh, Mm -hmm. different ways and a little bit better than we have when we first started dealing with death. But I think the most challenging thing for me is feeling comfortable sending patients home. I mean, I'm at the point where I'm about to be on my own practicing. And the last thing I want to do is send somebody home who should have been admitted. Um, We are trying to check everything, their labs, get scans, Mm -hmm. do everything we can to make sure that when we send someone home, they're safe. But it is scary when you do send someone home who you think is safe and they potentially weren't and they come back sicker or dead or Mm -hmm. whatever. So Yeah, I think there's a lot of different aspects of emergency medicine that can be challenging, and we find many ways to cope with it. Yeah, one of the APDs, I was working with him the other day, and he brought up a case 
a bounce back case that we had that ended up dying where um, this guy had just, he was a new dialysis patient. He had a port and he had come in for like a golf ball size swelling on his left arm. We ultrasounded it, um, formal DVT ultrasound and like a POCUS to like look for like abscess formation. Like it was gone by the time I saw him. And um, it was all negative, like exam's normal now. He was like, I don't know, just ace wrap, heat, ice, I don't know, whatever you want to do. Sent him home. Two days later, he came in septic, um, died in the ER despite like four pressers. He was intubated, ended up having endocarditis, hmm. which now every time I see a dialysis patient with a fever, I feel like I have like a complex about it. And I'm like, we should get an echo. That happens. I mean, you can be influenced by one case. One bad outcome can change your practice forever. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. It was great having you. Thanks and for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for sharing all your stories as well. I uh, hope to have you back on the podcast soon. Yeah, it's all good. Yes, I'm ready. I'm nervous. Don't be. (laughs) This is going to be in your bloopers. (laughs) I'm nervous.